0: In this episode, we wait out there for part two of our conversation with Brad Hansen from Helena, Montana. Brad grew up in Utah and fell in love with the feeling of fighting big fish as a child, fishing for Lake Rainbows with his cousins. He started fly fishing while attending college at Utah State and later moved to Montana and began guiding on the Missouri River. We discuss how to break down big water into digestible pieces, tactics for fishing the Missouri River, and Brad tells several stories of how and why his perspective around guiding and fishing has changed over the years. We also swap stories about what makes Slough Creek and Yellowstone Park a special fishery for both of us. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. how has your approach to guiding or your philosophy on guiding, how else has it changed throughout the years and why we talked a little bit about this before with the, the couple that you were guiding and how they come back every year and you see them, How how is those experiences beyond the, the concept of it's okay to not catch fish, which I think is also very poignant and important to understand if for no other reason than, you're just going to enjoy yourself better if you have a better expectation, right? You just, it's, it's frustrating. And, and when you have the wrong attitude going out there and you don't catch fish, like ah, it's a bummer and you're more bummed out. I mean, I definitely want to catch fish when I'm going out. I'm not, I, I do, but I guess how has your, uh, I'm curious around this idea of how you've changed your concept of guiding.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the things you'll hear, uh, it's a platitude that, you know, we use sometimes. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, you're out there and you'll be like, oh, well, that's why it's it's called fishing and not catching. or, Or they'll say, oh, or, or something like, um, what's another one? Uh, Like, oh, I'm just happy to be out here enjoying the river. You know, know, when a client says that or somebody says that, what they really mean is why the hell aren't we catching more goddamn fish? (laughs) You you know what I mean? If that makes sense, like, that's just a nice way of saying, like, oh, man, I'm not catching as many fish as I hoped I would. You know, if somebody really wanted to go enjoy the river, they'd go get a beer and sit on the edge of the river and watch it float by for free. So, you know, realizing that, um, you know, people (laughs) – and this is something that, that I, you know, I'm still figuring out, but like when people want to, you know, when people hire you as a guide, they are expecting to consume an experience. Just like if you buy movie tickets and go to the Cinemark, you're going to consume this film. You're going to go home at the end of the day. You're going to talk to your friends about it. Oh, it's a great movie, whatever. It's, it's the same thing with, with a client for the most part, they're paying you to consume this experience. And that experience is to hook and reel in fish. Um, and when I first started guiding, I thought that, you know, if we didn't catch, you know, hundred fish in a day that they were going to be mad at me and they were not going to tip me and they were going to call the outfitter and say, oh, this was the worst day ever. I never want to fish with this guide again. You should fire him. And, uh, so I was very stressed out, right? Like I, I remember my very first guide trip. I showed up. It was a super nice couple. And, um, I I was sweating and just, I was anxious. I didn't I was pale. And they asked me, are you okay? And I was like, Oh yeah, I'm I'm fine. (laughs) And you know, we, we had a, we had a fine day. We caught fish, we had a good time. And I thought, you know, we, we we didn't catch a lot of fish. And I thought at the end of the day, they were going to be super bummed out. and instead they took me back and they said, well, you ought to come over and have a beer with us. And we went to the bar there in, in, in town um, and they bought me a bunch of beers and they said that they, that was the best day of fishing that ever had. So one of the things that I began to realize as a guide is my perspective of what a good day is or what I think they are looking for isn't necessarily what they're looking for. So you need to ask them at the beginning, like, Hey, what are you looking to do today? Right. Um, what what do you see as a good day? Do you want to uh, dry fly fish? Do you want a nymph? Are you trying to catch as many fish as possible? Do you want to stop and go for a hike? Like, do you want to, like, what do you want to do today? And then you kind of let them plan the day. So at the end of the day, you can say, well, hey, we did everything that you wanted to do. And, uh, and that, you know, if you're a decent guide, a half decent guide, you should be able to catch fish on the Missouri, you know, a few anyway. So, That's changed a little bit. So I'm not near as stressed out as I used to be. And that just comes with experience and getting to know people. You know, um, there there are two things that a client's going to remember on a day of fishing, whether you were a personable guide and could have a conversation with them and what you fed them for lunch. If your lunch sucks, <laughs> <laughs> that's what they're going to remember. It that's, about, right?
0: that's, that's, now it's time to get concerned. Now we need to be worried. If lunch, is, if lunch sucks, like, yeah.
1: Because you can have a really
0: tough
1: day of fishing, but if you've got to knock it out of the ballpark lunch and plenty of beer in the cooler, who, who can't have a good day, right? So, uh, well, I'm happy that you said that
0: because – I'm in charge of lunches when we go on my with my brother on his drift boat. It's usually my brother and my dad and me. Although my son came for the first time on our rendezvous this year. We went to the big hole in the beaver head. But uh, I take a lot of pride in my lunches. And I got pissed when they, when they weren't eating. They were like, I'm not hungry. I'm like, what? Like, look <laughs> at this sandwich I made you, man. Look at how good this is. I got all this stuff on here. And I got potato salad and forks. And like, I had... I pride myself on lunch too, so it's yeah, good. It makes me feel good inside to hear you say that.
1: <laughs> I, I got to tell you this story. So I was guiding out on the Missourias years ago, and it was in August, and you know, it was, you know, every day was hitting the century mark. It was just blistering hot, and there was this guide out there named Artie, and uh, he, he was, you know, he's an older guy, uh, probably in his sixties, and it, it, he would just hang out, out out of the bar and every night, and you would just see him passed out by the door and he was kind of like a reserve guide that if a guide called in sick or something and you know you couldn't find anybody else an outfitter would be like well you know go over by the bar Artie's probably there we can grab him and uh so Artie was guiding that day and and he was just all messed up from the night before talking about lunches here and uh anyway he brought for lunch uh for his boat because I was on a, a trip we launched at the same uh spot and we were going to take out at the same spot and anyway we're floating down the river and hit. you know he's he's really having a rough day and he brings for lunch and it's like 101 degrees like we're getting off the river at one o'clock because it's so hot he brings them like spicy chili and cornbread for lunch and these poor clients are just suffering down eating this awful lunch and uh, we get to the takeout and there's the the takeout in Craig, Montana, there's a boat ramp that is on an incline. And then at the top of the hill, there are two outhouses. Well, all these boats are kind of lined up. We're all getting off at the same time because it's hot and here comes Artie and he's just rowing like a madman down the river. (laughs) And he's dodging, he's dodging drift boats like he's in, you know, Daytona 500. And he gets to the, he gets to the boat ramp and he drops anchor and he immediately starts running up the hill towards these, these shitters. Right. And and you know that like all the beer he drank the night before, plus, you know, a big bowl of spicy chili, like it's all rumbling in there. And and I turned to the guys who were in his boat. I was like, Hey, how's your day? And they're just like, Oh, it was awful. Like we didn't have a very, a very good day. And lunch was terrible. Like we all have stomach aches. Philly was bad. And, uh, So Artie gets out of the boat and the two clients get out. And if you don't drop enough anchor, right? And then the weight changes, the boat rises. So now his boat, the anchor is not on the ground. So his boat catches the eddy and starts going out. And so somebody yells, Artie! And he's up there and there's a couple of people waiting to go into the shitter. And he turns around and he can see his drift boat. He can see that it's starting to float away. And you can see in his mind, he's like calculating, like, do I stay here? and try to use the bathroom, or do I chase my boat and potentially, you know, not make it? And he decides to run down the boat ramp. He crashes into the water like a puppy learning to swim for the first time. Just big paddle strokes. And on a Missouri in the summer, Jason, we get these big floating weed mats when the grass starts to break free. And, you know, they're so thick that, like, bald eagles will sit on them and float down the river. And right at right at the time, Artie hits the water. One of these floating weed mats comes by and just envelops him, and he you know he's 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 tangled up in this blanket of weeds and moss. And we're worried he's going to drown. A couple of guys in kayaks were there. They go out and get him and bring him back. And uh, he, he didn't drown. But as as they pull him up onto the boat ramp, he stands up and in his you know in his you know experience of almost dying, he completely shits himself. So he gets up. And he, he's got his own shit running down his running down his shorts in front of, like, 35 people taking boats out. And he looks at everybody, and we look at him, and he just calmly walks back down into the Missouri, takes his pants off, and starts washing off. And his boat is now, like, a mile down the it's river. It's gone. It's gone. He puts his shorts back on. He walks up. He walks across the railroad tracks and right back into Joe's bar. And we don't <laughs> see <them. laughs> I mean, and so, like... Those guys, they're gonna remember that lunch, right? They're gonna remember the bad chili that made everybody sick. They're gonna remember Artie missing his boat and shitting himself. And, and and you know, when when you think about that, like any of my guide days are nothing that bad. So like I'm okay as a guide. Every once in a while I'll think, man, I didn't do a very good job today and I'm like, Well, I didn't shit myself on the boat ramp.
0: <laughs> <laughs> at least at least I'm not Artie. And I didn't lose my boat and shit myself. So,
1: yeah, you know, everybody calls him Shardy now, which is a (laughs) nickname. But
0: anyway, (laughs) Uh, hostile renaming. That's what we used to call Uh, that. Yeah. Are there any, talking about guiding and your perspective changing, are there any people, mentors, or whatever you want to call them, folks in your life that have helped? change your perspective for the positive Uh, other things that you can remember that, that kind of feed into this kind of different way of looking at guiding that you've come across, or is there anything else that you want to say about uh, that? The idea of looking at guiding differently.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, do you ever read that book, uh, desert solitaire by Edward Abbey? I don't know. Um, So Edward Abbey was kind of this crazy guy that was down in Arches National Park before it was Arches National Park. He was a park service employee and he was kind of part of that uh, environmental movement um, of the, the monkey wrench gang. And, you know, he, he was, he was a little on the, on the crazy side, I think, but he wrote this book called Desert Solitaire and I read it in in college. And one of the things he argued back in the 1960s was that um, building roads, building sidewalks, building you know, making everything in our national parks accessible to anybody was, was the wrong idea. That was not what he wanted. And and his reasoning was that, um, you know, there was something to be gained in the experience of having to ride a horse in or hike in or sweat and, and have, you know, a tough time backpacking in to see these places And so he fought tooth and nail to stop the park service from making roads to Delicate Arch and to Old Faithful and to some of these places where, you know, uh, 17 of your you know favorite Harley Davidson driving guys can show up and just essentially make it deafening. Right. Um, and, And I remember thinking about that as a guide and thinking, you know, what, what is my role here? Am I supposed to make every aspect of this, you know, experience accessible to anybody who has the money to do it or are there parts that as a guide i can say yeah you know this part of this experience is really reserved for people that know how to fly fish and know what they're doing and have put in the time and the effort and the and have the skill set necessary to to um, experience this so there are places right there are places that i love to take people but they require hiking and they require um, wading in swift water, or they require a, a reach cast that not a lot of people can do. And so when I first started guiding, I thought, well, man, they're paying, they should get access to the whole list of features or opportunities, experiences that I can offer. And over the years, I've become more picky in what I share, you know, what kind of experiences I want to have with different kind of clients. And, and here's the other reason, Jason, because if you haven't like Edward Abbey was saying, if you don't know what it feels like to take your boots off after hiking eight miles, you can't appreciate that sunset over the Bob Marshall Wilderness, right? In the same way that somebody who is dropped in and has, you know, uh, you know a glass of Pinot Noir and hasn't had to do anything, they're still going to see the same sunset, but it's going to be different. And so th- that to me is kind of important. And I... I've become a little more picky in, you know, who I guide. I've got a list of folks that I like to fish with because they appreciate the sport. Um, and they appreciate the experience. And, uh, there are people who really liked fishing with me, who I just simply declined to fish with them again because I, I don't, I don't like them. I don't like who they are. I don't like their philosophy on, on, you know, how they view the resource. Um, what they want to get out of the day. Uh, one of one of my good friends, who I mentioned earlier, Jim Stein, who's been a mentor to me, he was a guide in Colorado for twenty-five, thirty years. And I asked him, I said, "Well, when did you know it was time to hang up the guiding boot, so to speak?" And he said, "When when I took a client out and tried to drown them." And I said, "Oh, well, that that is <laughs>
0: <laughs> time to <laughs> you stop." Know,
1: it, and what you know what happened jason is after after a river runs through it came out what was that 1995 right everybody wanted to go in a river and wave a stick and i think john garrick wrote a book about that standing in a river waving a stick you know and all the all the western you know rivers if it was private water those those ranches sold to ultra ultra wealthy people and places that we used to fish are now fenced and you know this kind of stuff where everybody wants to go out and, you know, fish is a good thing for guides. I mean, we're super busy. It's a good thing for the fly fishing industry, but there was a culture change. And talking to my friend Jim, he's like, Yeah, I used to be able to get people who were physically fit in shape, had a good conservation ethic. They wanted to fish with me and would go out and have, you know, have a great time. And that changed over to sort of corporate clients who, Hey, here's our list of our top salesmen. We're gonna send them out to Colorado or Montana for three days fishing, where it's just uh you know who caught the bigger fish and hyper masculine competitive men, and, and it's just not fun, right? They're not there to they're not there for the same experience. And Jim, Jim took a bunch of uh uh investors up uh somewhere on the Fraser River, I think, or some somewhere in Colorado, and he took them to this beautiful spot in a canyon, no cell phone service. And the fishing was tough. It was you know, big fish on little flies. And these guys had fished all over the world, but they couldn't cast. They couldn't do anything. And they got mad. And and Jim told one of the guys to keep wading out, wading out. And he knew where a big shelf was, where the river dropped off. And he know, one step more, one step more, you're almost there. And, and he saw the guy go under. Yeah, one step more. And he said, as he was dragging that guy out of the water after the guy filled his waders, he's like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. I'm not a good guide anymore. Like I wanted this guy to fall in. And so I, I've, I'm getting to the point where, um, I realize that there, there, there is a point where I won't be able to do this anymore because I won't have the patience that I need. I won't be able to sit down with somebody who is a complete asshat and just bite my tongue. And, uh, I know guides out on the river who are very close to that place too, and and some of them are able to push through, and some of them they get x number of years in as a guide, and then they're like, yeah, if I have to float from Wolf Creek Bridge to Craig one more time, I'm going to use that 45 on myself or my client. <laughs> you know, I. I've well, it seen, sounds like
0: it sounds like yeah. you have realized that as much as you are you know, in the fly fishing industry and it is a business and you're providing a service, fly fishing is still an experience, right? And you said this several times. Your the client is purchasing like an experience like they would purchase a movie. But you still love to fly fish and fly fishing no matter even if it's a business interaction, it's still experience for you. Right? It is. And so you can't turn that off. I mean when you're floating down the Missouri river in Montana and you're looking around, there's bald eagles and it's, you know, you know, you're there, it's beautiful. And when you're out in nature in these places that we talk about and that we want to go to, that we want to go back to, uh, you can't not have an experience. And, um, if people are ruining the experience for you, then it could be frustrating. Uh, I can imagine I'm empathetic. I don't understand what you're going through. I've never guided, but, I definitely can see that. And I think that's a lot of the reasons why some people, I talk to a lot of people that say they don't want to start guiding because they don't want to ruin it for them or, you know, they they feel like it would make it too much of that. Um, But I would imagine too, that you have probably dozens of stories of really beautiful experiences. I mean, you told me one of the most moving stories that I've heard on this podcast that didn't involve like, you know, some sort of, veterans organization or some sort of, you know, like that didn't end in just a fly fishing story. I mean, that, that was powerful, that story. And I know that you have other ones of young people getting into fly fishing for the first time or people coming out with family members or being reunited or learning or more than just catching a fish. So right. I would hope, yeah. you know, that, yeah, I there's probably those that kind of keep you coming back a little bit too.
1: There are, that's, that's fair. And thanks for kind of t- talking about the other side of the coin there. You know, if if you're going to fish with somebody who's new, um, you you should be able to find satisfaction in, in seeing their success.
0: Sure. And not just and, and, new people, yeah. but even experienced people. and yeah, exactly. And not just catching fish and success, but just like you're saying, the experience of the day and the things that are special about fly fishing that you get to experience. Cause everybody that comes out there is having an experience, right? If me and my brother came out there to fish with you, I mean, I don't see my brother that often he's in Seattle. And when I do get to see him on a fishing trip, it is special for us. And I don't care. I mean, I want to catch fish and I know he wants to catch fish and I'm, I want to catch fish, not going to lie, but, I'm happy to see my brother. That's that's why right. we're here. We're here because this is a way for us to do something together that we both enjoy, that is beautiful. It goes back to our family heritage and our history with my dad in Montana and, and things like that. And so that experience for me is beautiful as well. And, you know, we're not beginners. We're not experts either, but... I don't know if you're going to tell us to walk to the edge. <laughs> no,
1: no I, I, I I've never, I've never think, gotten to that point. So
0: I don't think, I don't think we're going to put you in that kind of place. We probably frustrate you with some of our casting, but we're not going to put you, over, we're not going to go over the edge. All right, that's fair enough. Before I start wrapping it up, there's a couple things I want to do. I have a couple questions about the Missouri River that I have to ask that we didn't get to. Okay. For my own selfish reasons, and also. I, I I want to know your opinion. And I also want to talk about Slough Creek because I have an affinity to that body of water, that fishery. And I know you had, uh, you do as well. And so I'm interested in that. Uh, so first for the Missouri, if you could only fish the Missouri two days out of the year, which two days would you fish it? And how would you fish it?
1: Oh, uh, only two days. Okay. Well, I would fish it in, uh, I would fish it in June during the PMD hatch, and uh, that that's that's my favorite hatch. And the fish, the fish are still somewhat uneducated. They they've had the winter off for the most part. They haven't seen a lot of uh, you know a lot of boats over top of them yet. And uh, the brown trout are just out and about in in June for whatever reason on the Missouri. You can catch big brown trout on dry fly. So I'd fish probably like June fifteenth. Somewhere in the middle of June.
0: Okay. are trying to uh, be right after the runoff, I guess?
1: Yeah, right after the runoff, yeah. You know, the, the on the Missouri, fish will rise 8,000 CFS and lower. Anything above eight to 10,000 CFS, I watched it's moving a little too fast for them to come up. Um, you, you may get some in back eddies and things like that, but, uh, yeah, you're kind of looking to, to to fish it when it's 8,000 CFS or lower. I've fished that river at 26,000 CFS. And it's just, I mean, you got life jackets on and yeah, there's, there's not a lot going, going on.
0: Are you, so it's a, it's a tailwater. So I guess that if, when the, when the water is coming up and down, it's based on, I guess, agriculture downstream and stuff, but it's, it's not so much runoff. I guess there's creeks coming in too, that would rise it as well, but is the CFS, well, let me, let's get your second day. And then I was going to ask you about CFS too.
1: Yeah. Second day would be uh, sometime in um, December or January and there's nobody out on the river. It's nice and quiet. It's calm. We'll get warm uh, winds that come down from Great Falls and uh, it may be 30 degrees, 25 degrees in Helena, and it might be 55 degrees in, in Craig on the Missouri. And I will you know, go out with a couple of friends and we'll just do row rounds. We'll pick that slow water and we'll bring lots of beer and lots of good food. And we will just catch 50 or 60 fish all on nymphs and have a great time just reeling in big, fat rainbows. And there's no one else around. And when we've scratched that itch, we'll row out and, and drive home. So th- <laughs> those, those are the two days,
0: man. Like, Okay. Uh, those are good June, days.
1: During, June and December. Yep
0: those are good days. If you, I am a slightly below average fly tire. If I was going to tie a couple flies that are pretty good flies, I know that it all depends on time of year and hatches and things, but not too many materials, not too complicated, pretty good kind of confidence flies that I could take up there. What are uh, a couple flies that you would recommend that if I brought them, you would look at them and say, all right, we could fish a couple of these maybe.
1: Yeah, easy. A size 18 zebra midge, a black thread, and a silver uh, wrap, and then a size 14 tailwater sow bug.
0: Perfect. Those, Those are... are the
1: two nymphs. And then if I got, if I had to pick two dry flies, I'd say a size uh, 16 rusty spinner and a size 14, um, well, what what caddis would I tell you? I would I would say a size 14 translucent translucent caddis
0: yeah okay
1: bring those four flies you'll catch fish
0: okay yeah Uh, we were talking about cfs i want to go back there a little bit uh what's normal cfs and then uh what's kind of high and what's kind of low this is just kind of a data point for people that they're interested but like what are you looking for for like perfect flows i guess i know it depends so take out with a grain of salt it's kind of a broad question but what's good, what's low where you're kind of worried about being too low and a little bit too high.
1: Yeah. Great question. So, uh, kind of the bottom end where we, where we see the flows are 2,500 CFS to 3000. That's as low as we like to see them. Uh, the average flow is about 4,000 CFS. You can wade fish at 4,000. Uh, you can get a boat down at any level, really. Uh, 6,000 CFS is my favorite flow to fish. And, uh, 6,000 becomes a little tough for the wade anglers to, to, you know, stay anchored to the ground. Anything above 8,000, you're not seeing any wade fishermen. Uh, it's pretty good drift fishing. That's kind of the upper limit of what you're going to see with dry fly fishing. You can still nymph it, uh, anything above 15,000, all cards are, or all bets are off, right? That, that's a lot of water moving down. Anything above 20,000 CFS, uh, that is a lot of water moving through the system and really, you know, you're, you're long line nymphing with heavy split shot or you're fishing the banks because the water's moving so fast that the fish have to move to the banks. A few years ago, hell, I was dry fly fishing the water. It flooded in the campgrounds and I was dry fly fishing on the picnic tables, um, in the campgrounds. That was the only calm water there. That was in 2011 and 12. But, uh, Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's a good, a good way to gauge, you know, whether the water's too high for what you want to do. And the best thing to do is just call one of the fly shops and they'll tell you um, what's going on. The good news is with the tailwater, that river fishes year round. There are a couple of tributaries that come in that can make it off color. But even then, there's, you know, eight, nine, 10 miles of it that you can always fish even during runoff. So Um, The shitty thing about it is that when the guides in Missoula and Bozeman and other places, when their rivers are blown out, uh, the Blackfoot and the Yellowstone and uh, Madison, when those are blown out, everybody in the state descends upon the Missouri River and it can be uh, very busy. So, uh, you know, great time of the year to fish, springs, early summer, tough time of the year, August, September, And then, you know, October is great again, you know, depending on you'll get all the hatches in the spring and summer, and then you'll get all the hatches as the water cools down in the fall. So it really is, there there isn't a time of the year where you can go out there and and not, you know, have something going on.
0: In the winter, does it get too cold to fish? I mean, does it get iced up or is because it's a tailwater, is it still pretty good? Is there a season like, yeah, we're not fishing in January or we're not fishing in... December? Or, I mean, I guess January you said was one of the times you would go, but.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, this, this year we had a, two weeks of 45 below and the whole bottom river froze up and you could walk across it. And that, that hasn't happened for five, six years. Um, but the upper river, even from, you know, the dam down to Craig, those first seven and a half miles that stays open no matter what. Um, guys well, you gotta be careful though. Some of that sheet ice will break free. There's a guy that just about, you know, drown a big piece of sheet ice kind of took him off his spot and pushed him in and he was able to get out, but.
0: All right. Um, okay. Well, before I ask you about Slough Creek, uh, is there anything else you want to say about breaking down big water and the challenges of that? Um, we talked a little bit about looking at it as different, smaller streams in one big area, but is there other things that you see that we haven't discussed that you want to pass along before we move on specifically to that? Cause I think we kind of moved on from that before I, th- I think I gave you enough time to kind of tease out everything that you were wanting to say.
1: Yeah. Talking about breaking apart big water. Um,
0: and if you don't have anything else to say, that's okay. That we yeah, don't have to talk about anything else. We've been talking for an hour and 35 minutes, so it's it's totally fine if you don't. But if I just want you to know that if you if you have other things that you think are important for people to 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 know about breaking down big water, especially the Missouri, happy to hear it.
1: You know, there there was a well there is a guide who is probably the best guide on the river. You you never want to get stuck behind him because you're going to look like an idiot. His his boat is always catching fish no matter the skill set of the angler. His name is Mike Niles, he's been guiding for 35 years. He can tell you on any day, on any you know any flow, on any type of weather what fly to use and what float to do and where where to catch fish, right? Um he doesn't I mean he just knows, like, he's just got this, this uh, body of knowledge that he can pick from. And uh, one of the things that Mike showed me when I was guiding on a trip with him, and I was, you know, we were catching fish, but he was, for every fish we caught, they caught five. I finally um, asked him at lunch, I was like, what, what's going on? What am I doing wrong here? And, and he said, um, he "said you're rowing, you're rowing too fast. And I said, what do you mean? I, I'm, I'm not going any faster than the indicator. You know, I, what, what am I doing wrong here? He says, you're rowing too fast. And uh, he he carries around this. He had a little piece of paper and he got out a pen and he started drawing some, some you know, stuff on this uh, piece of paper. And he's like, hey, look, when you come around, when you come around a corner and you're fishing it inside out, he's like, you're going to, you're coming in too fast. The fish are on the top end of the shelf. And you're coming in too fast. you got to slow that boat way down so when those flies come by, they don't pick up the speed of the boat when that current swings the back end of the boat around. I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And sure enough, he was right. You know, and what I learned from that is got to slow things down. Um, One of the things that I have a tendency to do, and people who fish with me, especially if I'm wade fishing a river, I... I cast a couple times, then I'm on to the next spot. And uh, what I'm starting to figure out now as I become more of an experienced angler, whatever you want to call it, is uh, if you slow things down on, on a big piece of water and not get caught up with, there's so much to fish, I need to fish it all. I'm just going to fish this little spot, and I'm going to fish it, and I'm going to go to the next spot, and I'm going to fish it. Breaking it apart that way. It's similar to what I said earlier, breaking it into five smaller rivers, like slowing things things down, not thinking about, you know, not overthinking things. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Every guide out there and every angler out there has their own technique, but some techniques are definitely more effective than others um and and some of the best guides on the river are just perpetually high right like they just don't have a lot of other cares going on and so life is pretty slow like we're going to get on the river and we're going to get off when we get off and they always catch more fish than the guides that are like shit we haven't caught enough fish I got to do this I got to do that so part of it is just kind of letting the river kind of do its thing if you're out there putting in the time something magical will happen i I've been guiding for a long time, and I've never had a day where we're trying, and something magical didn't happen. Uh, and if you and I were to go fishing this afternoon, something magical would happen between the time we put the boat in and we took the boat out. Would something the river? The river, even though she can be an honorary biatch. Sometimes she always has some little gift for you. Uh, it, it 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 it's. I can't explain it any other way than that. And that really doesn't have anything to do with big water, Jason. But um, if you're going to go out, something will happen good.
0: I like that. Let's talk about Slough Creek. (laughs) I've told this story. I wrote a blog post about this. Uh, One of the best days of fishing of my life was on Slough Creek uh, a long time ago when I was just a kid. And uh, it's a place that, my father used to go in the mountains and elk camp up there and stuff. We used to hike in Woodbine through Frenchie's Meadow in, in north of the park, uh, is how we used to get there when we were kids. Um, I've, I've hiked in from the park side too. I didn't catch any fish, but, <laughs> mm. uh, but when I came in the other way, I caught, uh, I had a great day fishing with one of my friends and it was one of those days and that's what the blog post is about. It's like, was, what makes a good day's fishing? Because we didn't know anything about fly fishing, really. You know, we had, I was probably, I think, still a teenager. And it was just us up there. You know, we had a fly rod that we were taking turns with because we didn't want to pack two. You know, we didn't want to pack two. And we had a box of dry flies that we didn't know really know what they were. I think I knew Eau Claire Caddis and like Royal Wolf, I knew. Uh, but we were just catching flies with no – all we did was throw it out and caught fish. And we caught fish all day until – and we would just lay in the sun, not catch fish, and go back to catching fish. And uh, it was one of my – best days fishing memory wise. Cause I was with a friend of mine who's very important to me and I don't see him that much today. So it's kind of like this nostalgia thing. When I go back to, when I think about fishing with my friend Kelly and, uh, yeah, my dad used to take me up there when I was a kid. So it's a special place for me. I mean, that's, that's a long, long story <laughs> about that. So can you talk a little bit about your relationship with that fishery and, um, what makes it special for you?
1: Yeah. Well, it's great to hear your, you know, your experience in Slough Creek. It sure is a special place, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's one of those places that just kind of gets stamped on your, uh, on your memory and on your soul when, you know, everything in Yellowstone is pretty neat. Uh, to me, I I've been going in, into the park for a long time. And, uh, some of my first experiences in there were with, um, you know, as a boy scout hiking in and messing around in the park and trying to catch fish. And then a couple of my high school buddies who I still stay in contact with, we did a trip in there a few years ago and uh, hiked into Slough Creek, or that the first meadow anyway, and Soda Butte and the Lamar. And there's something different about catching fish in Yellowstone than catching fish anywhere else. Those cutthroat, those Yellowstone cutthroat are um, big and heavy and they are in no hurry at all to do anything. The, you know, those super slow takes and the way that they shake their head when you, when you hook them, it's all pretty neat. Well, uh, so I, (laughs) I've, I have these really good memories with my friends, like, like you just talked about going into Slough Creek. And when I started this, uh, this job working, uh, my nine to five job working for a, uh, a land trust that we talked about a little bit before the podcast started. Anyways, one of the things that we do is we, uh, we take people into Slough Creek folks who um, are donors, essentially they support our non you know, the nonprofit I work for, and it's a way to show them. A lot of these folks are not from Montana or, or even the American West, right? They're maybe from the Midwest or the East coast, New York, And we're able to show them this just spectacular landscape, this beautiful river and uh, get them into some fish. It's a neat thing because uh, the trip is outfitted in the sense that the outfitter takes everybody's gear and then drops it at third meadow. He has a permit to fish at third meadow. So you hike in the seven miles on the, on the dirt, on the dirt road or the trail, I should say. And then, uh, you can fish in as you go, so I did this trip a few years ago with a group of guys. It was great and this summer, I was really excited to go in uh I didn't know who the folks were who were going to go in with us, but uh anyway, long story short, it was an interesting group of guys this year, and uh we went in well we I guess I should back up just a little bit. I don't want to make the story too long, but um The group of guys we had were uh, attorneys who had really not done a lot of fly fishing, a guy who had done a lot of fly fishing, but had sort of lied to us about his abilities in terms of being able to handle a backcountry trip. And then uh, a guy from California who I fished with a lot, who's a damn good angler. And like he's 76 years old and could out walk and fish both of us combined all right so we met these guys we all met at the trailhead we dropped our motley crew yeah motley crew and uh the attorney uh one of the attorneys had recently bought some ground in bozeman and uh it was 320 acres up bridger canyon and he was uh absolutely terrified of running into a grizzly bear on this trip so we had him you know we had him with bear spray and everything else and I didn't quite know why he was so scared of bears until later. But anyhow, uh, the guy that I ended up hiking in with was this gentleman from the East Coast who had lied about his physical fitness. And When we got there, we were like, oh, shit, is he going to be able to make it in? Well, he had gone to REI three days before and said, hey, I'm going into the Slough Creek. What do I need? So they loaded him up with you know, a water bottle with a filter and some bug spray and some new hiking boots and uh, a couple of other things. And so he showed up and within the first, as, as you may remember walking in from the park side, the first mile is the worst. It's just all uphill switchbacks and then you're on straightaway by that first mile. He was about dead and he had started pouring in those little Gatorade packets into his water. And so he'd clogged the filter. We're a mile in and his filters clogged. So, so anyway, uh, we get we get into we get into Slough Creek and uh, or we're walking into Slough Creek and he runs out of water and we we get there we're about two or three miles in and uh, he has to lay down and the other group is way up ahead and not knowing this gentleman very well I don't ask him if he needs water if he doesn't need water and we're passed by a couple of other backpackers going in and and anyway he finally tells me that his water bottle is clogged. And so he has no water and my filter is on the pack horse coming in. We don't have any water and we keep hiking. We slowly, slowly, slowly hike in and, and we get in and, and this, this is where this story really goes different. He turns to me and he says, boy, I've got a, have got to go to the bathroom. And I said, all right, well, we'll go ahead. And so I sat down under a shade tree and, Grabbed a granola bar and the next thing i know i see this east coast fisherman standing in the middle of slough creek with his pants down and he is just letting things rip i mean it looked like it looked like the animus river in colorado when that dam broke i mean those cutthroat couldn't see anything behind him and i jumped up and i started shouting at him and i said i said mike you can't take a shit in slough creek and uh he said to me, and I'll never forget this. He said, don't worry, it's Mother Nature's bidet. And uh, he took out of his pocket um, his handkerchief and proceeded to wipe himself and clean himself off. And then he put that handkerchief back in his pocket. And if you've ever seen anybody wipe their own ass with a handkerchief and then put it back in your pocket, it, it it's something else. And, and so... <laughs> We, we continue to walk up to Slough, you know, to Slough Creek. We finally get there and he's exhausted. We spend the night, that first night, and the, the guys, uh, the attorneys, they, they thought that the outfitter was going to create you know, this, you know, this camp where there was going to be a shower and everything else. Well, none of that happened. And um, th- these guys were just unable to appreciate the fact that we were in one of the most beautiful places on the planet.
0: On the planet. Yeah, Great, I, mean, I on love the planet. it. Right and
1: yeah. uh the second day I fished with with the same gentleman again, Mike Michael, and we went down and he you know, he ran out of water again and he ended up passing out in the stream. He, pa- he passed out? He passed out in the stream and Oh my I, gosh. I, yeah, if I hadn't been there he he would have he would have drowned. I pulled him out and we walked him back to camp. And we got him some water and it was it was the same thing the last day when we came out, uh, it took us, took us forever. And uh, I thought to myself, I was like, this, this was the worst trip um, I've ever been on in the Slough Creek. And uh, it was a lot of babysitting and it was a lot of, uh, (laughs) I don't know. I, 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 I had a really bad attitude about it while I was there. And on, on the hike out, when, when I was mad at this guy for, you know, Taking up my time and not you know not being able to physically do anything and needing help with everything from tying on his fly to you know basically you know wiping his ass you know wh- one of the one of the things I thought about was well what what was what would his perspective be and so as everybody else hiked out and and we were hiking back down hiking back down, we get back to the car and he could tell that like my patience was gone and he came over to me and he's like hey i I'm really sorry this this was a little bit more than, than I could handle. And he said, I just want you to know that I sure appreciate you sticking with me. He's like, you may not know this, but um, this has been on my bucket list since I was a little boy and got the, um, you know, the Orvis magazine and saw pictures of Quill Gordon dry flies and big Yellowstone cutthroat. And he said, and I said, so Michael, you will admit it. You did, you did lie on all of the, all of the paperwork we gave you saying you could physically do this. He's like, Oh yeah, he's like, this just about killed me. <laughs> and he said, but, and he apologized. He's like, I thought everybody shit in the river. I'm like, no, nobody does that. Nobody goes in the river. And he's like, yeah, a lot of this stuff you know, I'm learning. And and he thanked me for dragging him out of the river when he got so dehydrated. We got, we got down to, <laughs> to, the, to the car and he, he he gave. He went to shake my hand, and uh, it was the same pocket that it had that handkerchief in. And so I just ran over and just gave him a big hug. And uh, and on the way back, the, the other guy I worked with who, who we went with, we were talking about it and just how, how tough a trip it was. But then we started to get the thank you emails from these guys saying, hey, sorry for being a pain in the ass. That was one of the neatest experiences. We're just starting to realize now how how neat that place is, how beautiful it was. And how out of our element we were in the backcountry, and uh, we we sure appreciate you taking us in there. And they all gave donations, and it all ended up working out. And I think that's the beauty and the magic of Slough Creek and and the national park. And then I'll add on top of that, uh, that's the beauty of fly fishing in these in these places. So when we um, put our feet in the in the river. Some people think fly fishing is is religious. I, I'm not one of them, but I do think that when you fly fish or fish and you go out to these places and you take people with you, um, there is an opportunity for growth uh, for for everyone, right? And and I've I've hit on this a couple of different times in our conversation today. Um, I learned some patience with a guy who I otherwise wanted to, you know. Drown myself. He got to check something off his bucket list and catch wild Yellowstone cutthroat trout in in a beautiful place. And really, now looking back at it, I just have to you know I just laugh about the experience. And and that really should be fly fishing. We have these ups and we have these downs and we have these, these good experiences and we have days where we don't catch fish. It, it's all part of this uh, experience of. Um, Trying to figure out, and I'm going to go kind of big philosophy now. Just what our human experience is as as people, and uh, for me, for whatever reason, my brain is wired to love this kind of stuff. I, I love doing it, even on the days that I hate it, I still love it. And I think that'll make sense to listeners who fly fish. And uh, you, you know, I think that that was the big takeaway for Slew Creek. It was nothing like I thought it was going to be. It wasn't like when I went in with my friends. I had, for the most part, a miserable time while I was in there. And then now this story is one that I tell people all the time, not just because I'm still poking fun at Michael a little bit, because I had to learn some patience and realize that, hey, uh, Slough Creek can you know, be something to me that I never thought it would be, which was a learning experience.
0: Yeah, that's a funny story. I think... It's a it's a meaningful story as well, you know, and uh, it is something that my father used to talk about when I was a kid, not, not that I was spoiled, but just that the opportunities that I had to be in those places and see those things at an early age, especially, and it's just unique, you know, you talk about somebody's bucket list or just millions of people that don't live in around those places. One thing I do talk about a lot on the show too is that fly fishing is also, it doesn't have to be Rocky Mountain and it doesn't have to be trout, right? And there's all of these really cool places in the country. It's it's a great country. I mean, it's an amazing place and there's fly fishing everywhere. Uh, and there's these really cool experiences that if you don't have this biased opinion that it has to be Yellowstone cutthroat in the Rocky Mountains, maybe Michael would have got out to I don't know, fish for stripers off the coast of Georgia or, you know, like something like that.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: But man, it, it's, it's cool to be able to go to those places. You know, it is, it is, it's cool to be able to go up into Yellowstone and the mountains and things like that. And, and it, and it is, it's cool to be able to show that to other people, you know, my, um, so, I'll tell you this story. I don't know if we're going to keep this in or not, but it's kind of, but my father, he's from New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. And he moved out to Montana when he was a kid. We talked about this a little bit before the show and such, but, uh, 20 years old or something. We used to go out there in the summers. My audience knows that I used to work out in Montana as well, but, And that's why we were up in Slew Creek that time. Well, my grandfather, um, my grandfather didn't uh, like that my dad went to Montana. The the whole family's from back East, right? This is the seventies. But my grandfather and my great grandfather and my dad, they used to bump around the woods in New Jersey. So, It was kind of an outdoors family, but it was back in New Jersey. New Jersey was a lot different back then than it is now, just like Montana is. But my grandfather never came out to visit my father in Montana. He came after we moved to, after we were in Washington, he came to visit us there, but he never made it to Montana. By the time he was over his kind of, you know, stubbornness, he was too old to go into the mountains. And now my dad was going in to elk camp in Sluick Creek right he mm-hmm. would he would go and he was actually the guy that I worked for on the ranch he was a guide uh, in that elk camp and my dad went in to cook he was the camp cook cuz he wasn't going to be a guide but they were like Wait, we could use you to help Manny packs and bring stuff in and out and so my dad would go in and he hunted too he would go in and hunt with with uh Ray his friend uh so anyway, my, my grandfather, he never went out there and my dad's been up there a bunch, you know, in the meantime, well, eventually he dies, you know, as people do. Right. <laughs> so, so he died and my father, because there's this kind of rift between them. I mean, they got along, but it was just kind of this little small thing that, um, my dad brought my grandfather's ashes up into Slough Creek and buried him like way up there. And, um, when my grandmother died, he brought her up too, but he brought my aunt up. My aunt, my dad's sister had never been in the mountains. She'd lived there her whole life and same type. She'd never seen it before. So when you tell that story, I think about my aunt and like coming to a place like that, and and just like blowing her mind and the things that she thought about, but just because she hasn't been in the mountains and didn't grow up there, like she still has a tremendously special experience with Crick, Right? It's not the same as yeah. mine, but it's not any less important, I guess, especially to her. Probably more important to her.
1: Yeah, I I, I, lo- I love that you know, isn't that, isn't that really what fly fishing is? I mean, it's, it's about people and it's just the, it's this thing fishing that we do that brings us together. It's, it's why we end up in these places and have these experiences with these people we love. I love that.
0: Yeah. And so when I go up there now, or when I think about it, I think about that, you know, I think about, and when you tell that story, I think about all the people that don't get to see that because why my aunt would never have gone up there if my dad hadn't had lived the, the, the way that he had. So
1: no, that's, that's super neat. Yeah. That's such a neat place up there. I, uh, I hope I get to go back this summer. Um, I don't know the, the park in general. I, I like getting over there.
0: Yeah. It's a cool place. Yeah. And there's a lot of, if you're willing to work for it and hike in and stuff, there's still a lot of stuff that's off the road that, you know, like a lot of fly fishing, right? I mean, a lot of times we talk about pressured water and stuff, but there's still a lot of, a lot of places you can go that it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to find out about. Uh, and if you're willing to put in a little effort, you know, like hike a little bit or, or go off the beaten trail a little bit, you know, you can still find some good places or not that other places aren't good, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? You can still find places that are, that are out there and and have that quiet, unique experience. I think about fly fishing on, like, the Missouri or the Madison or the Bighorn. Like, I I think of that as, like, a whole different experience, you know? Like, it is. It, it's not yeah. standing in a river waving a stick. It's not that magical quasi-religious experience. It's more like going to a concert or something. Like, yeah. There's a lot of people... We're all there for the same thing. We really like it. We really, really like the music. We really, really like the fishing, but we're all, it's crowded, you know, everybody's kind of, there's like parking issues. Like it's, it's just a different experience, but it can still be really fun. Right. Especially if you bring a good lunch.
1: That, that, uh, yeah, that's a great way of saying it. And, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a perfect way of, of making a contrast between, you know, what, what the... What more of a commercial fly fishing river is versus the, uh, the small stream or the, I think Russ and Chad mentioned in their interviews that, you know, they, they all liked that book, Curtis Creek Manifesto. I grew up reading that too. And, uh, in the back of that book, that was by Sheridan Anderson. It was that how to on fly fishing in the back of the book. He says, well, is there a real Curtis Creek? And he says, that's up for you to decide and then he challenges all of the readers to go out and find their own Curtis Creek in in air quotes and what he meant by that is we should all have a spot that we can go and fish that's special to us maybe we only take our very closest friends there maybe we don't take anybody there but it's a spot where you can go and stand in the river, river waving the stick and, and kind of you know recharge your batteries or whatever it is you need to so do I, I love that that's a great yeah.
0: Experience. And it's like, I mean, let's say you, it, 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 you can still enjoy the music by yourself on a drive by yourself or, or in the woods on a hike alone and right. and and enjoy, and that music can be special to you, but then you go to a concert or you go with your friends and, and you're all listening to the same music, but it's different, but it doesn't mean you don't like the music any less. It's just, It's just a different way of experiencing the music, right? Being around other people or being by yourself, like some music really can put you in a somber mood, you know? So that's kind of the way I think about it because I do like to fish some of the bigger waters or bigger name waters, uh, because they're great fisheries, and they're fun, and I like to go to them. But.
1: And, and they have big fish in them. I mean, let, <laughs> sure. let's be honest. We all like catching yeah. like catching.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We've, we've waxed enough philosophy. Uh, we like catching big fish. All right. Brad, before I ask you my last question, how can people find out more about you? How can they um, schedule a guided trip if, if or, um, or if there's anything that you are excited about that you want to tell people about, how can people find out more about you and your journey and what you're doing up there, fly fishing?
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, it, uh, happy to put a little plug in, uh, th- thank you for that. So I, I am not an outfitter, full disclosure. I am a, I'm a licensed guide. And in Montana, if you book a trip, you have to book it through an outfitter. So if any outfitters are listening to this, I don't get in trouble. So, um, you know, okay. uh, yeah. you couldn't actually contact me directly, but there are a number of fly shops, uh, I mean, cross currents fly shop in Craig, Montana is a great one to call. And, uh, I work for that outfitter. Um, Montana fishing outfitters is another one. Uh, I work for that outfitter as well. So either one of those uh, outfitters could then, um, call me and hire me as, as a guide if you wanted to fish with me. Um that that's probably the best way and uh the legal way to <laughs> to do it so I don't get in trouble.
0: Last question, Brad. You ready?
1: Yeah, ready.
0: If you could go back to when you first started fly fishing and give yourself two pieces of advice, one more a tactical piece and a philosophical piece. What would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher?
1: Tactical and philosophical. Well, yeah, uh, I would say a tactical piece of advice would be don't worry so much about changing flies, change the depth. Okay. But yeah, we talked a lot about that today. Like that, In my experience, that's, that's the one thing if you're going to make changes, change the depth of where you're fishing, up or down, find the fish. And the philosophical one, I would say... That's a good question. That's a really good question. When I started fly fishing, I think a word that I would use to describe myself was desperate. (laughs) I was desperate to catch fish. I was desperate to figure it out. I would, I spent way too much brain power. I mean, hell, I had a journal for over a year and a half where every time I went fishing, I would write down the flow rate, the temperatures, what bugs I saw under the rocks, how many fish I didn't catch, uh, you know, all all that stuff. And now I look back and I chuckle a little bit because, um, it's, it shouldn't be that complicated. I'm going to echo what my good friend Russ Beck said in your interview with him, which is if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong. And, uh, I'm paraphrasing him, I believe, but have fun If it's not fun, you're doing it wrong. It should be fun. You should be able to go out and enjoy yourself. Yeah, if it's not fun, yeah, you're not doing it right. There was – tell a 30-second story, and that will be done. There was a guide, an old guide on the Missouri. He's passed away now, but his name was Bruce, and he was like 6'5". And just imagine a big white beard, like a really fit Santa Claus – And, uh, he would take people out. And I remember I was guiding with him. This was my first or second year guiding. And he had, um, I had the father and, um, Bruce had his son and his son was maybe 13, 14 years old. And the son really wasn't into fly fishing. And the dad was adamant that his son was going to catch a bunch of fish. And Bruce could see that the son just wanted to be there and play in the water and have a good time. And, at lunch, the dad got out of the boat, went over and started yelling at his son. Why aren't you catching fish? You need to listen to your guide. You need to do this, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I remember Bruce very calmly picking this guy up off the ground, <laughs> carrying him away from his son and sitting him down and saying, hey, listen to me. This is a memory your son's going to have for the rest of his life. And you want it to be a good one. Trust me, I'm older than this river. Don't mess this up have fun with your son. And that dad came back and is like, Hey, you don't want to fish. All right, well let's skip rocks and let's do this different. And, um, if I'll go back to it again, if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. And that's the piece of advice I'd give myself. Cause I had a lot of days where I missed out on having fun in the pursuit of trying to hook this, you know, creature with a pea sized brain. Um, you know, and that was just, uh, I was missing it. So, Have
0: fun. I like it. Those are good pieces of advice. I like that story a lot. It's a good reminder for me and my son and my daughter coming up. (laughs) Me too. Anybody with kids that wants to go out on the river and catch fish, right? That's a uh, humbling experience. It can be. So uh, I think that's uh, well said and very welcome. And just like all your advice today, really great. I learned a ton about fishing, about fishing in the Missouri and um, and this, some of those stories were really meaningful to me. Um, so I thank you for that. Thanks for your candor and thanks for spending the time to be on the show, man. I really enjoyed talking with you. It's been a pleasure.
1: Hey, same right back at you, Jason. Uh, hopefully we didn't go too long, but yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you. It's been fun to think about some of these things, uh, here, here this afternoon. And if you and your family want to come up, uh, a day on the rivers, it's on me. So you just let me know and we'll make it happen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, Wade Out There.